0: Welcome to the Freedom Formula for
1: Physicians podcast, where it's all about slashing your debt, slashing your taxes, and creating a liberated lifestyle. And now, your host, who met his wife while training for the 400 meters in Seattle and is eating gluten free whilst lusting after bread, Dave Denniston.
0: And we would like to thank our sponsor, Locum Story. Have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine? Whether you are burned out, need a change of pace, or are looking to supplement your income, locum tenens might be a solution for you. If you're considering locum tenens either full time or on the side, you probably have a question or two, or 20. Fortunately, locum story has the answers you need. It is packed with unbiased information and advice from physicians just like you. LocumStory.com has nothing to sell. It's simply a resource for information where you'll find all kinds of super handy tools that let you see Locum's trends for your specialty, be able to compare it with different Locum's agencies, and there's even a quiz to help decide if Locum's is right for you. The Locum Story blog also features content and perspectives from actual Locum's physicians who have firsthand Locum's experience. LocumStory.com is the perfect place to start you want to learn more about locum so everyone make sure to check out locumstory.com hello my friends and welcome back to another episode of the freedom formula for physicians podcast a podcast dedicated to helping doctors like you slash your debt slash your taxes and live a liberated lifestyle well if you've been listening to this podcast for a while you know that i am passionate about real estate i'm passionate about healthcare professionals and doctors. And my next guest is someone that has been running a successful healthcare practice for the last 24 years in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, besides doing that, she also found out is doing some nutrition stuff around that and has a virtual office about that. And also uh, got into multifamily. And so she started purchasing some multifamilies, had done some flips, with residential real estate. So I'm looking forward to hearing about her journey and how she's doing what she's doing. Please help me welcome Dr. Jeanette Bernbach. Welcome to the show, Jeanette.
1: Thank you, David. I am so happy to be here. And tell me, isn't it true, you also lived in the Pacific Northwest, right?
0: That's right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I went, I, my dad's side of the family is from the Northwest. I was the seventh person from my family go to Seattle Pacific University. So I moved from Southern California to the Pacific Northwest, which is where I met my wife and about 10 years later we moved out to Minnesota. So it's always been a second home for me. Are you in Seattle area or where in the Pacific Northwest are you?
1: Know, well, I since you're, you you've lived here, I I think I can tell you and you might know. I live in Woodinville, which is yep. a yep. right you know it. I I say Seattle because people who aren't I from here typically wouldn't know where that was but it's on the east side it's pretty remote there was a bear in my neighbor's garbage last week you know that kind of thing so um I can hear coyotes at night also I, even though I'm very near the city I'm I'm also kind of living out a bit so when I go home when I leave my office I really feel like I left my office
0: I love it isn't the the, the Chateau St. Michel winery in Woodenville?
1: yes yes it is
0: There's some hoopla about that, wasn't there? That they're changing it up or they're selling the winery or something? They
1: are selling part of the land. They've decided not to grow grapes there anymore. So they're selling part of the land. But it's such a Woodville icon that, you know, people can't help but have opinions about it.
0: Did you grow up in the Northwest or what, um, where were you from originally?
1: No, from outside of Philadelphia. I I grew up in central Pennsylvania. And... I went to Penn State University for undergrad. And after that, I, didn't, I wasn't sure what to do. I actually knew way back then that I wanted to go into healthcare, but I had started out in pre-medicine and, and didn't really feel like that was the right path, but I wasn't totally sure what to do after undergrad. So I moved to Japan for four years, right? After undergrad, it was a good time to go. And it's, when I think about my story, I have a kind of typical generation X type story where we were told, you know, you go to school, you get good grades, you get a job, save money, you know, that kind of thing. But there were some events in my life that made, you know, that story a little bit more unique. And one of these was that move to Japan. So I was already interested in healthcare. And when I got there, there was such a different view of health and healing and longevity Mm -hmm. compared to what we were used to in the United States. And I was living in a house and my neighbors on both sides were over 100 years old and they were living alone and they were gardening and doing tea ceremonies and coming to parties if, if I threw one at my house and carrying their own groceries and, you know, they were completely fine and healthy at at 100, 102. And so they would go, they would actually visit healthcare providers, but they were going for acupuncture and infrared treatments and paraffin waxes to keep their hands functioning and things like this was how they were getting and staying well. And then in the morning, I lived my house was right next to a little elementary school and the elementary school had a yard for the kids to play in. But before school at six in the morning, we would go out, the whole community would go out and do Tai Chi together. So this, this type of thing just, you know, wasn't anything that I had been used to. And my ideas of aging and healing and methods of healing were really formed by those years that I was there.
0: And you were like college age then at that time, like, or post-college, I guess you this
1: said? This was like post, 22 22. yeah, I had graduated from Penn State, so I would have been about 24 then. And so right through my, my mid-20s, I was living and working there, and I, I was teaching English. That's what we were all doing and how yeah. we got there, right? But we, my third and fourth year, I also managed to study on uh, different types of art techniques, some textile dyeing techniques that I had fallen in love with while I was there too. So, you know, I wasn't just working the draconian 70-hour work week that you hear about there. That that happened too. But in the third and fourth year, I was able to kind of, you know, change that up with some art as well.
0: And so you you were there for a few years, I'm sure. You were full to the gills of sushi, I hope.
1: And... <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> that was picnic food. It was... Yeah. Yeah. Definitely learned to love sushi. I still do. I still love it.
0: Well, it must, it must be like, you probably had real wasabi and not the horseradish that we have here. So I'm glad
1: you know about that. Um, That, that is statistically true that wasabi is one of the most counterfeited foods that we have here. Um, Yeah. We had the real thing. And when you get to Japan, there's a trick, that people who are already there attempt to play on you, which is to convince you the wasabi is a mitt, right? And it, that you should eat the whole thing. So oh, yeah, it was it was definitely real.
0: Well, I understand real wasabi is actually crazy expensive. Is that, yeah. Is that right?
1: Yeah, it, it was. Um, everything was more expensive there though. So it kind of fit in. I guess I didn't notice so much at the time, but it, it was so good too. It was worth it.
0: <laughs> I love it. And so you, you get back to the states. Where where did you land back?
1: One thing that that got me back here while I was in Japan, I was living. You know, the lifestyle was so different. The house that I lived in had no heat to it. There was we I mean, we had little kerosene heater where you would heat one room, but every hour we had to open the shoji, the paper doors, and let all that kerosene out. So you were never you know really warm. We slept on the floor. You had mm-hmm. to learn a new language, everything was was different. And a person who a, a healer there who helped me was a chiropractor. So that is what made me decide when I go back, I'll apply for chiropractic college. So I started doing that from Japan and there were 15, colleges and I called them all and they were all the best according to them, right? <laughs> so I wasn't getting too far that way. And so I ended up going to school in New York, which put me back closest to my family in Pennsylvania. So I chose it just based on location. But when I got back to the States, I was straight into school there. Chiropractic college goes year round. We do trimesters and there are 10. So that was year round for three and a half years.
0: And so now now you're in your 30s. Were you? did you rack up a good bit of medical debt, you know, like what, what was it like living? I imagine Japan, you know, you probably didn't have a whole lot of costs because you were teaching English and they were probably covering a lot of your needs, but you weren't saving much. But I imagine you get back to the States and go, go to the chiropractic school. And
1: It was expensive. I, um, and while I was in school, I met my now husband. So he also was, racking up the same debt that that I was at that time, and this is twenty four years ago, it was one hundred and fifty thousand dollars of debt that we each graduated with.
0: So he's a chiropractor as well.
1: Yes.. Oh, yes. So when we got out of school between us, we owed a little over three hundred thousand dollars. And today it's more. i my heart really goes out to people coming out of school now because it it's even higher than that, and only half of it was subsidized. So, it was accruing interest even while we we weren't working. So, so I got back to the states. I went started school right away. Uh, we got out of school and started a practice right away. I think we graduated maybe on a Friday, and we had our office open just outside Philadelphia by the Monday after oh that, gosh. and started working. We wanted to pay down that debt, and so we lived, you know, kind of in a small apartment. We had one car since we worked at the same place anyway, right? We could get away with that. And we paid that debt down and paid that money off and never wanted to be in debt again after that. So so that would have been, I actually, even before I would have paid that debt off, I ran into the second thing, which made a really big impact on me, which was around 2004. So I would have been maybe halfway we were about halfway to having that debt paid off. I, that's when I read the Cash Flow quadrant, right? Which mm-hmm. was a, a title you hear all the time, right? And at the same time, I also read Robert Allen's book, Multiple Streams of Income. I think they were both published at the same time.
0: They were. I, yeah. I, I, th- I think Robert Allen's book is so much better. You know, in terms it, of giving direct strategies, what do you think? It
1: does. It's, it's three, four times the size. Yeah, it's it, there's a lot more strategy. You're right. Where cash flow Quadrant was more like a sledgehammer, you know, to your idea that you've got to trade time for money where multiple streams, yeah, had more blueprints to it. And I read both of those right around 2003 or four, And I loved my job. I still do. And so it didn't occur to me so much, you know, to have an exit strategy, right? If you don't like your job, it's very easy to say, I got to do something else, right? I have to have some other plan, but I, I wasn't thinking that way. And I didn't realize that, well, maybe one day I'd want to take a vacation, right? Or do something like that too. And it wasn't just about loving the job or not, because I do still love it, but I also want to travel. I have a daughter now that I want to spend time with and put through, through college. She's 16, but that was really eye-opening as far as I can produce income in ways where I'm not just trading time for money.
0: And, and so you, you get kind of this eye-opening experience in the, the mid-2000s, and uh, real estate was hot at that time, right? I mean, this was going up to 2007, 2008. Did you get into some real estate then uh, in that time period before the crash happened?
1: I wanted to I I have always loved real estate and Robert Allen he there were no webinars at that time that type of thing didn't exist but he would do conference calls so you'd you know pay him a certain amount of money and you could buy a program from him and he would help you purchase properties but it wasn't as organized or as easy as it is now. And I also, at that time, we moved. We moved from Philadelphia to Charleston, South Carolina, just because we loved Charleston, South Carolina, I still do. So there was a move going on. We had to open a new practice. I did not get into it at that time, but I I definitely wanted to. And then a few years later, We moved again. This time it was to Tampa, Florida. And the reason for that move was I took a teaching job there. I had a clinic there as well, but I took a teaching job there. And it was to apprentice and to learn. And at that time, that's what we, you know, one of the ways that you could learn. There weren't as many seminars and webinars and things like that. And if you wanted to learn, you sometimes had to just pick up and move, which is what I did. So I had enough going on that there just wasn't the time to do the real estate. And actually that office in Tampa, when I opened it, I was pregnant with my daughter. There was a lot happening at that time. And then two years after that, I moved out to Seattle. So that's, it it gets simple from there. I moved here and we've been here ever since, but that's when I got into real estate actually was when I got out here
0: and were were you and your husband together this
1: whole time? Yes.
0: Okay, so he's this two of you are still together and you were moving each of these times. Well, at least you had each other to lean on. Why yeah. why, yeah. why, why so many moves?
1: Charleston, it was because I loved that place. I just wanted to live there. I, we had been in Philadelphia for 4 or 5 years. We had a really successful practice there, but we vacationed to, to Charleston and we both love the beach and and the water and that city. And so we just wanted to move. Florida Mm -hmm. though, That was truly to learn and to increase my skills and to work with a couple of practitioners who had been in practice for over 40 years and just had a lot to offer to as kind of an apprenticeship. So I moved there for that. And after two years in Florida, you know, there's a lot of good, good about Florida, but we we both had done what we went there to do and didn't see ourselves living there long term. But when you sell a practice, you sign a, you typically sign a non-compete clause Which meant I could not go back to Charleston because their non-competes are usually about five years, and it had only been two. So instead, since we like coastal and we like cities, we ended up here. And there was a, a person here that my husband works with that he he's a business consultant. They, they coach a lot of chiropractic offices. And so that worked out for a lot of reasons, and it's been a great place for for my daughter to grow up. Seattle has so much to offer for people growing up here. Anything you want to do, and I was, is basically available here and the weather it does rain all the time but it's you know it's pretty mild too
0: i always tell everybody it's the cloudiness it's yeah. not really that much rain it's it's the cloudiness that gets you i guess this year's an exception with the rain <laughs> that y'all had but uh, you know it's 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 depressing in if you if you don't like cloudiness a lot you know so that's yeah. that's what i've said about i like minnesota better in that we have more sunny days it might get cold but it's still sunny a lot of the time. Whereas in Seattle in January, it's cloudy. <laughs> you don't have a chance.
1: It takes about three years to adapt. you know. And then if we can, we take vacations and leave the summer right now. It's gonna be gorgeous for the next six or eight weeks. Right? Yeah. And then, yeah, we'll be, we'll be right back into the clouds. You can imagine one of the things in a healthcare practice that we hear about a lot is depression, right? And people dealing with the effects of the lack of sun. And we have to work hard to keep our vitamin D levels up here.
0: it sounds like you guys restarted practices like three or four times.
1: This is the fourth. Yeah.
0: My goodness. That's, that's just that in itself, leaving the real estate part out of this, you know, just like doing that every time I have to imagine just exhausting, you know, exciting, but exhausting too. You know, you just kind of get momentum going and then you end up shifting gears again.
1: There was so much to learn. For instance, um, different parts of the US, they're different culturally, and they are different with regard to the main health challenges that we saw in different areas. So there was there was so much to learn about each group of people. And it, you, I kind of feel like I have my hand on the pulse of, you know, whatever community I'm in, because I'm hearing are in a hands-on profession like chiropractic or clinical nutrition is, and we're spending typically, you know up to thirty minutes sometimes, you hear a lot about their lives and their stress level and more involved than just this hurts in this spot. There's also this is happening with my kids or my job. And so there's a lot a lot of involvement that way that keeps you very focused and busy on how can I fit in here and serve these people?
0: Absolutely. So, you're, you're in Seattle, and what year were you guys started in Seattle? What year was that?
1: That would have been 2006.
0: 2006, when you got to Seattle. And so when, when did you get
1: into real estate then? So that was the first thing I did would have been 2007. I decided I wanted to try flipping a house because I thought that would be fun. <laughs> and it was fun. And I, I flipped a house In a town north uh, north here called north bend you you may know this place too since you were here beautiful beautiful little it's it's beautiful out there right and uh, there was a, a property there on the river it had been a log cabin that was brought from alaska someone had actually relocated this thing from alaska and set it down on this river and so it was very old we, when we did the rehab, we preserved a lot of the wood structures and everything about it that we could, but we also brought it up to modern standards. We added the basement had just been, there was a stove down there that they were using for heating. So we added a bedroom down there and a bathroom and we made it a truly modern place. And we anticipated that flip would take three months. It took nine, you know, kind of typical stories you, you hear with flips. At the mm-hmm. end of the day, When we sold it, we did make a profit from it, but I realized too that as fun as that was, it was a second job. I did not have time to do that. So then I start looking around at, I was listening to a lot of podcasts by then. I had a 40-minute commute into my office, so I'm listening to a lot of podcasts. And what they were talking about around that time, so this is eight, nine years ago, was Purchasing single family homes was a strategy that was talked about. So I thought, all right, well, that's next. I'll jump in and do that. I'll have these properties that will be being managed by other people, and they'll just be cash flow from these, and I'll just manage the manager. So I jumped in and I bought eight in a year and a half. Eight? I bought eight single family homes.
0: How, how did you find them, Mike? Were you sending letters? Were you looking on MLS?
1: No, I had an advisor. I think they're still existing. It's Narada, N-O-R-A-D-A. And what they were doing, Narada would vet different turnkey providers in different markets, and then they would introduce you to them, basically. Mm -hmm. So they would vet these turnkey providers, and they had a list of criteria of things that they expected that turnkey provider to do for people purchasing the properties. And then they would tell you about these markets and then ultimately it would be you, the buyer, who would make the decision to buy there or not. But they had a process for finding and vetting these people. So I used that service and they introduced me to these and their advice at that time was you would buy properties in three different markets approximately in order to, you know, spread out your investments and hedge against weather and market changes and job transitions where Amazon decides to locate or not, you know, that type of thing. So I did that and I did buy properties in those different markets. And I learned a lot about managing properties, how turns work, how to deal with all those different aspects of owning properties, but you can only get 10 Fannie Mae loans. And so I had two left, so I start thinking, you know, with ten single-family homes. If I did that, I did the numbers. The cash flow was okay, but it wasn't ever going to get me retired.
0: Well, let's 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 talk a little bit about the investment, right? I mean, seven homes. If you're buying seven homes in Seattle area, like that's a lot of money. Well, we wouldn't do
1: it here. We definitely not do it in Seattle. No, these were in Alabama. Got and you. Florida and and Illinois
0: and Illinois so wasn't like Ohio but these these probably were what 100,000
1: purchase price around right around there yeah the Florida properties were a little more because they were new construction so they were a little more but you you're also not going to have a lot of expenditures on those properties either versus a rehabbed house that from a turnkey provider so but they were yeah basically what you're saying they were right about in that range and we used to think the 1% rule at the, at the time, I'm not sure it applies so much anymore, but the 1% rule where you would want the property to rent for 1% of its purchase price. And there was no way to make that rule. It's a, it's a, it's a back of the napkin rule, but it doesn't work at all here in Seattle. It's not even close, but mm-hmm. in those markets, it did. And so I talked with these different sellers and you could use... Google Earth, for instance, right? And you could walk, literally walk around the house and look at it and check it out that way. Of course, you could travel there too, but I was working full time and had a young kid at that time. So I didn't do that. I did this all from a distance. But when I got toward the end of those loans, I learned from probably a podcast that I could also buy a two, three, or fourplex. And that would not count yet as a commercial property. You would still buy those with a conventional loan. So I found two fourplexes to purchase in Florida, and the light bulb went on after that, how much of a difference multifamily made, right? Where with a single family home, when they're vacant, they're 100% vacant, but the fourplexes are never 100% vacant, or they haven't been to this point. And when two of the units were occupied, all the bills were paid. So the, the light bulb around multifamily just went on at that point. Right, And I actually started, I sold some of those single family homes uh, after that, because I realized I had all this equity tied up there, but it wasn't producing as well as other types of investments would. And one of those that I found next after the fourplexes, when the the multifamily light bulb went on, was I looked at passive syndication. Mm -hmm. So becoming a limited partner in syndications was the next thing that I looked at. I was always looking for what's next.
0: And now let's take a moment for a quick commercial break. And we would like to thank our sponsor, Locum Story. Have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine? Whether you are burned out, need a change of pace, or are looking to supplement your income, Locum Tenants might be a solution for you. If you're considering locum tenants, either full time or on the side, you probably have a question or two or 20. Fortunately, locum story has the answers you need. It is packed with unbiased information and advice from physicians just like you locumstory.com has nothing to sell it's simply a resource for information where you'll find all kinds of super handy tools that let you see locum's trends for your specialty be able to compare it with different locum's agencies and there's even a quiz to help decide if locum's is right for you the locum story blog also features content and perspectives from actual locum's physicians who have first-hand locum's experience locumstory.com is the perfect place to start if you want to learn more about locum, so everyone make sure to check out locumstory.com. And so you, you own some multifamilies on your own, or one or two of them. And uh, what was the cash flow like, you know, in those? Multifamilies? Yeah, I
1: have, I've got three, actually. I have three fourplexes in Florida. And those, if they're fully leased up, they'll cash flow. Three to 4,000 a month?
0: Now you said if. What's the reality? Like, are you like 80% occupied, 90% occupied during the year? You know, and some people move in, some people move out, kind of a thing.
1: That's a good question. Um, there are definitely months where all 12 units are occupied. And then there can be months where I've got, say, three of the 12 are being turned for the next tenant to come in. Mm -hmm. But I've never had any of those buildings have more than two units turning at the same time. So they are always able to pay for themselves. That could change. Of course, it's possible that suddenly everyone in one building had to move out or couldn't pay their rent. And during COVID, that was certainly a possibility that something like that would happen, but it didn't. to date, nothing has happened where there have been more than two. And I'm guessing, but I would say I read my profit and loss statements pretty carefully every month, that there's usually not more than three that are vacant out of the 12. So so those have been great. And the next thing then to look at was was syndication and with limited partnering, after you find the investment that you want to go into, you it truly is passive. You don't need to do any of the work. You just get the benefits from that investment, which are a few things or th- three main things. One is you have your cash flow or the cash on cash return that the sponsors of the deal pay you. It is definitely tax advantaged type of investment because the K-1 document at the end of the year helped me to write off a lot of the rental income from the other properties, which because they were passive. And then when properties sell, you get a return on your investment there from the percentage of equity you own in that investment. So those were so easy to do. It didn't involve a bank, right? Or getting a mortgage. You just had to find the right sponsor. And I did about four or five of those over a number of years. Like I said, I'm always thinking, what's next? I I wanna do this too. I've never done short-term rentals, you know, but I think about that too. I wanna learn kind of everything there is to know. After I saw what limited partnering looked like, then I thought I would also like to see what it was like to be a general partner and to work on these from the sponsor side and, and the general partner side and do the work, do the actual work and help other people get invested into this type of thing, just like I had done.
0: What, what, a, what a journey of going through this whole process leading up to, to now. And, and I'm curious, Jeanette, If someone wanted to follow your path to a degree, I think there's a few things I would point out that you did smartly. You were running your practice, you were busy raising your kiddo. And on the acquisition side, you hired essentially a company to find the leads for you on the residential that I thought was incredibly smart. In order f- for you to help acquire those. We didn't talk about the multifamily and how you got those, but you know, for someone that's wanting to do it themselves, besides that, you know, trick or, or hack, if you know what you know now, and of course, even times have changed the last 10 years with technology and everything, how would you go about today getting started when you don't want to be part of a syndication and you wanna control stuff?
1: I think people should look into everything that real estate has to offer like for short-term rentals you know would be one way to go um buying single families buying small multifamily. there's wholesaling house flipping right you would look at every everything that real estate has to offer there are so many ways to be in the space and then you do the thing that you love because you don't want it to be a chore. You want it to be fun because that's all real estate really has been. I know I love it because even some of the things that are, that are difficult, like a tenant who maybe doesn't take as good care of your property as you would like, right? These things aren't pleasant, but even then I still enjoy the whole process. So I think you you just have to find what you like about it and then understand the best way for you to benefit from it, whether it's tax advantaged investing or that you want a certain amount of income per month, you know, we call it mailbox money sometimes, or you want something that you can leave to your kids, right? You can't leave your kids your job.
0: No, <laughs> right?
1: you cannot. Leave, no matter how hard you work at it, right? You cannot leave them your job, but you can leave them um, this legacy. Right, so I'm hoping actually my 16 year old will come to a real estate convention with me this summer. I think I'm, I'm hoping she catches on fire a little bit about it. 16 year olds have a lot of other stuff on their minds, but um, believe me, I know. Right? Oh, have you got one too?
0: Oh yes, almost okay. seven, almost 17. We got a year left till she goes off to college. So
1: okay, then fair. you know, right? Yeah, the idea of hey, drop everything you're doing and come to this four day real estate conference with me, right? But there'll be a pool in the hotel. I, I don't know. I'm going <laughs> to, that's my plan. Anyway, I'm going to try. So um, I would like her to do that, but yeah, you, you know, so you have to think about what you want out of it and how much time you have to put into it too. But I do think now, if we just focus on healthcare providers, which this probably applies to other professions as well, but I, I know this group a lot from having done consulting work for all these years in order to weather changes even if you love your job it's really good to have the passive income going when i was if we go all the way back to pennsylvania that first practice that i had every year blue cross blue shield that was the major insurer out there would charge more and cover less mm-hmm. and let us know about it in january a big book would would show up and as that tightened down and less and less services were covered I saw practices going out of business because they couldn't weather that storm. And what they really needed to do was start converting to some cash paid services, or maybe they had to bring in some massage therapists or other people into their practice or something where they could survive the fact that insurance wasn't going to pay them as much as it did. And they, they just weren't ready. So if you have this backup plan that can really help. And change is always going to happen. It's It was it was scary for a lot of practitioners if they had been used to receiving these types of benefits from insurance for all these years and then that insurance company changed or cut them off out of the plan or whatever it was, that was scary, but resistance to change really can be a resistance to success. And so I saw this starting all the way back there. And then if we fast forward to the pandemic where not only did healthcare, we we all had to step up. Everyone had to step up, right That pandemic, but a lot of practices also had to convert to, to telehealth and mm-hmm. I was one of them. I had been doing some of it, but it was a big transition. There was new uh, software to learn HIPAA compliance issues to become familiar with paperwork changed, you know, there were all kinds of things to consider. and again, if you didn't have other, streams of income in place, it was harder to make that transition because poor financial health is kind of like a pre-existing condition, right? If, if you have any pre-existing condition and you get hit with an additional stress, it doesn't go as well for you.
0: Absolutely. so, so I guess I want to get back to my question, you know, just in terms of like, if we think about tools, because I, I didn't really, I mean, I, I know you answered the question to like, you know, find something you're passionate about. But let's let's say that someone is interested in single family houses, which is often a great way to start because you may not have the money that you need for a down payment on a triplex or quad or whatever. So if you were looking for single family houses today and you were just starting out, how would you go about that process?
1: At this point, it is different than it was 10 years ago. 10 years ago, people were picking up the properties that had been foreclosed or short went through short sales after the crash in 08 and Mm 09. Those types of properties, well, we may be headed, unfortunately, for that again, right? But they currently aren't available in that same way. So how properties are purchased and rehabbed is a little bit different now. So if I was doing it today, I would say, if you could, you'd want to buy properties in the same general area where the numbers work versus having them, I wouldn't buy one in one state and one in another state, you know, even if the numbers worked out. And that's to help consolidate the number of property managers that you have to deal with. And it would make it easier to visit your properties also, which is, I think, a good thing to do and make sure that they're being managed the way that the property manager is telling you they're being managed. And then I also think the more of them you can get, the better, because when one is empty or needs a new roof you've got the others helping to pay for that and i also think that type of purchasing is better for younger people because with single families you're built the cash flow isn't so high but you are building equity but that takes time right so if you're just coming out of school yeah that that's not a bad way to go right you're in your 20s I, th- I think that would be fine. And you you don't maybe have as much living expenses, right? You have an apartment, you don't have kids yet. I think that's probably a good way to go. But you know, we start to get into our 40s and later, then I really would say to lean towards syndication or potentially short-term rentals, which again, I haven't done, but the more I learn about it, the more I think that that could also be be a possibility if you have the time to do it. Yeah, as we, as we get older, I think syndication looks starts to look better and better. So
0: um, you mentioned that you started being a general partner in syndications. Tell us about what you're up to on that side and lessons learned along the way there.
1: So what happened there? So I, the multifamily light bulb had gone on, right? And I had done limited partnerships and saw the benefits of that and really loved it. When I decided I also wanted to try being a general partner, I joined a coaching group so that I could learn more about it that way. And the coaching groups are good. I realized immediately, this is a completely different thing from what I had been doing, purchasing properties on my own, that everything that's involved in finding a property, getting the financing, raising equity, arranging for the um, cost segregation studies, the, You know, there's, there's so many things that go into it. And I didn't know really about any of that. So I paid for the coaching so that I could learn that, learn underwriting, learn the skills that were necessary to do that. And that took a couple of years to really feel like I could then reach out to uh, someone who was already doing syndication work, say, and bring something to the table where they could take me on as a partner. Mm -hmm. But it took some time till I felt, you know, that I was ready for that. And that's, normal, you know, my whole life, I've always worked hard to have as much education as I could get to learn as much as I could, you know, just kind of fit in with how things worked for me and in my profession and everything else was that I would do that work and earn that. And when I felt like I had got to that point, again, here I am listening to podcasts, right? I, if I scroll through my phone, I can't even think how many are in there. And I heard uh, my current partner at Blue Ring Investors, Sanjay Hegde, was doing a podcast interview, and he is a pharmacist. Is his background, so he's been in healthcare too. And he was talking about wanting to work with healthcare providers. Prior to hearing his podcast, I had actually reached out to some other groups who I knew were syndicators, and I talked about wanting to specifically help healthcare providers get invested this way. And they told me no. You know, healthcare providers—they're stubborn. They—they—they're stingy. They're hard to work with. All this, you know, stuff made them reasons I was not familiar with want to not work with those groups. But when I called him after I heard his podcast and told him what my goals were and that I had heard some of his on the podcast, and we talked for a long time. We had calls for a couple hours over several months. It was it was many months and. Then finally we decided that, yeah, we can do this. We can work together in alignment and we can make this work. And that was two, two and a half years ago now. And it was true. We were right. We, we see eye to eye pretty much on everything. We enjoy working with healthcare providers. We, we definitely have investors who aren't in the healthcare field, but more than half of them, I would say, are. And helping them do what I was able to do it it is, makes me happy. It's a great job. It's a great second job.
0: I love it. No, I think, um, you can relate to people, Um, maybe not the same exact journey, but you have a lot of similarities and your husband's still running his practice. It sounds like, so you're, you're still going through it on a personal level and you have your own practice on a daily basis. So I think, um, it's really interesting what you've been able to do now. Let's, uh, let's spend just a few minutes um, before we wrap up the podcast. As, as we look at this environment today, you know, I'm personally interested in self-storage because I think that as you look at the pandemic, I think there's a lot of holes that have been poked in multifamily with rent controls and having to keep people in <laughs> when they're not paying rent. On top of the fact that Uh, particularly if you're doing larger multifamilies, the the cap rate had declined so much in many major areas, you know, to find decent deals and make them cash flow. Well, hopefully now it's getting better that interest rates have risen. Maybe it's not as hot. I'm curious to know your thoughts on the opportunity in this space. I have no doubt we need to build more stuff and there's there's housing issues. But in terms of the actual prices and how good of a deal things are, I really wonder how good of a deal can you find in today's world?
1: You know, we did, um, I love what you said about storage. We, we did actually purchase a, we're, we're partners in, in a new construction storage facility in North Carolina. So we saw that opportunity too. When interest rates rise Typically more people rent. And this is one of the reasons that multifamily's been able to weather these storms before. Are is it harder to find really good deals? I I don't know that that we've run into that yet. I, I haven't seen it. Now we my the teams of the other sponsors that we work with and the other GPs that we work with are, are such good people and so good at doing their jobs. You know, we'll we'll team up with different people for, for different opportunities. But I can't say that we've run into it yet. No, um, people will always need a place to live. And so it's weathered the storm in the past. I think it will, will now. We, we have not seen that happen yet. So no, I'm very optimistic, actually, about the future. Um, and during COVID, there were rental issues, definitely. There was a lot of assistance, though, too, coming from different states, where they would help tenants with, with rental assistance and that helped get through the storm too. So no, I, I can't say that it's, that it's been a big headache.
0: Any, any major lessons you would pass on to doctors that are interested in taking a more passive role rather than being active when they are looking over? Cause there's so many different syndicators out there. I mean, honestly, um, I probably get three or four people a week wanting to be on the podcast, and I say no the vast majority of the time. So to me, it feels like there's a lot of people hunting for people to, to fund out there. And so you have to be able to vet one person or another, knowing what you know, what kind of questions would you be asking? How would you be analyzing deals and, and those kinds of things?
1: That, that is, you're, you're asking the question, that's important. We actually did a webinar on that exact topic where we, we went over 40 questions to ask a syndicator before investing. And it, it's up on our website, blue investors.com But we did that. Yeah. You, you definitely need to know the group of syndicators that you're working with. It's like a three to five year relationship. Or longer in, possibly. Or, or, or longer, right? Where you'll be invested in this property. And so, we're educators we we are both educators sanjay and i and i reach out to the investors consistently even if it's just to say hi you know we stay in touch we do zoom calls so that they can hear how things are going with the properties that they're invested um, with us in and many of them have invested more than once so you want that level of communication i think in most cases to really feel comfortable that during that three to five years your money's being well spent and handled. And I, I don't know every syndicator, in fact, you maybe have met more than me on on some levels. I, I meet them at conferences sometimes, but I don't know that any group, if, if their integrity is good, I don't know of any group that cares more about your, your money. For instance, I don't think Vanguard is going to lose sleep if my mutual fund loses value, right? But syndicators do truly care and watch these things. And we want the experience for the investors and the returns for the investors to be the best they possibly can. If if that doesn't happen, there's no point in doing what we're doing. So we do really care, but you have to get to know the people that you're working with on on a personal level to a degree. And their history would be one of those 40 questions. How has it gone with other properties? What's your work background? all of these things that let you know that the people that you're working with, you can trust. Because when people invest in an opportunity, they're investing in us too, not just the piece of real estate. They're also investing in us.
0: Absolutely. Well, Jeanette, we got to wrap up our time together. And what a great story of what you've you've been through and done. Um, Any other closing thoughts that you want to share with us?
1: I think right now, there's so much stress, you know, and we we can kind of get mad at reality and everything, the news, everything, right? There's just, there's so much going on. And looking at investing is an opportunity, it's, it's a hopeful thing for the future, right? It's a way to have something really positive to do and look forward to and plan for and pass on and all the benefits that can come from it. So I think it's a really good antidote, you know, to look into this type of thing when you compare it to the rest of the stressful news in the world. No, that's that's great.
0: And if if people want to look you up, get in touch, what's the best way for them to find you?
1: That's our website, blueringinvestors.com. And we have a lot of free information on there that people can download. And you can also see that webinar where we had all those questions covered there's but there's, there's a lot of free information on there and we also have a calendly link there and I'm happy to get on the phone and talk to people and answer questions whatever they need to know I I know I had a lot of questions in the beginning and podcasts are helpful but they're not interactive right where it's, sometimes it's really nice just to be on the phone with somebody and I really enjoy being able to have this conversation with you I've I love what you do. I love that you know where Woodenville is. That <laughs> was great. It's a great bonding bonding technique right away, and I look forward to maybe being on your show sometime again. Well, now I'll, I'll have more to say. After telling my story, you know, I've realized, wow, yeah, I have actually done a lot, but I think I, I don't think about it because there's so much more I want to do.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We'll it'll be interested to see how your story unfolds, Jeanette, and we thank you so much for hanging out and getting to know your story and your journey. And we'll look, look forward to see how it goes from here. Thank you. For the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, this is Dave Denniston. Remember, my friends, remember to slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Thank you, my friends, so much for listening to the last podcast. I am pleased to announce that I am now a completely independent Financial advisor, where to the point now I can really integrate my financial planning practice with this podcast. If you might be looking for help, if you have found any of our information here interesting or relevant, and you're looking, for a second opinion. I am making myself available for 30-minute strategy sessions. And if you wanna arrange a time to meet with me to discuss your situation and see if we might be a good fit for one another, I'd like you to call our office and speak with Kyla. Our phone number is 612-284-2409. Again, that's 612-284-2409. And I look forward to helping you with your financial situation. And now for some lovely legal disclosures required by our lawyer friends. Investment advice is only offered in jurisdictions where Centurion Financial Strategies, LLC, Centurion is appropriately registered or exempt from registration. Our Form ADV Part 2 brochure can be obtained free of charge at advisorinfo.sec.gov by searching for our firm name or its unique CRD number, which is 316-454. This podcast is not a solicitation to provide advisory services in any jurisdiction in which we are not appropriately registered or excluded. The information, statements, and opinions contained in this podcast have been obtained from or are based on information obtained from sources which we believe to be reliable. But we do not warrant or guarantee the timeliness or accuracy of such information. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be construed as personalized investment, tax, or legal advice. Opinions expressed by any guest are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the firm's views. You should carefully consider your own financial circumstances and needs prior to making any investment in securities or purchasing any insurance products. As always, past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing in securities or really anything else involves the risk of loss. If by some chance in this particular podcast I mentioned insurance products, Insurance products are backed by the financial strength and claims paying ability of the issuing insurance company. They may be subject to restrictions, limitations, and early withdrawal fees, which vary by issuer. You should always consider the charges, risks, expenses, and investment objective of any insurance products before entering a contract. And that, my friends, wraps it up. Wish you all the best. Feel free to contact us with any info at www.DavidDeniston.com. Thank you so much and have a good one. Bye-bye.